LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com This is a myth in the making. Often the person has not actually seen the spacecraft, but often they have. A number of these cases, uh, when they're floated through the wall of their home, through the window, through the door, so many of the details of these experiences make no sense in our Newtonian, Cartesian, Western, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. notions of reality, and yet the stories are consistently described. This gets really into the the way of how we know anything, but yes. we, our use of language, but we call something which is seen in the sky and which seems to be moving from one place to another, we call it a spacecraft. This has to do with where our own technology has come to. It could be created as a virtual reality and is similar, appears similar to what we already know as an airplane or a certain type of aerospace vehicle, mm -hmm. so we call it a spacecraft. But again, you know, if you want to get down to the very core of the way language structures reality for us, uh, you could even question whether they're spacecraft. If you go back into the early times, you know, Ezekiel's wheel, which is now many UFO, do you think that was a UFO or chariot seen uh, in the sky, or you go back to the fairies that kidnap people in Ireland and other countries, and it appears that the phenomenon is occurring with greater frequency now than in the past. This will teach us more about the nature of the cosmos than anything scientists will discover in the next 20 years using telescopes to explore the heavens. This is a myth in the making. Uh, actually, uh, what they're finding is that there may actually have been some kind of visitations or there are actual physical bases for myth-making. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, this may be indeed a myth of religion could evolve from this. This is a myth in the making. Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is David J. Moore, who joins us to discuss his book, Evolutionary Metaphors, UFOs, New Existentialism and the Future Paradigm. People have been witnessing strange lights and objects in the sky for all of recorded history. Their modern guise as UFOs began in earnest during the 20th century, particularly in the wake of the Roswell incident in 1947. Despite thousands of reported UFO sightings, close encounters, abductions and even crash landings, physical evidence for the existence of alien spacecraft and their inhabitants is practically non-existent. Shadow government cover-ups are claimed, but official disclosure seems as far off as ever. Other theories propose that UFOs may be interdimensional entities, or even individual or collective psychic projections. Whatever their true nature, the question remains, what lies behind them and what do they want? Do they present an existential threat to the Earth, or are they merely messengers from some higher intelligence? In urging us to rethink the nature of time and space, and break down the dualistic barriers between mind and matter, are anomalous phenomena such as UFOs forcing us to wake up to a wider reality? And if so, 
what might this mean for the future of humanity? Hello and welcome, David, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Uh, thank you very much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Okay, today, David, we're going to be talking about uh, your new book, your first, I understand. It's entitled Evolutionary Metaphors, UFOs, New Existentialism, and the Future Paradigm. Before we jump into that, just tell people a little about your background, your work in general. Uh, my background, really, if you look in academically, is English literature. But uh, before that, I've worked in a number of jobs and so on. But it was really, my core interest was originally existentialism and Ten tending towards pessimistic philosophy. And after that, really, I got interested in ufology because I saw a UFO in 2008. And then that effectively changed my bookshelves because I started reading books on UFOs to see what other opinions are out there and what, what kind of interpretations were floating in the air. You mentioned um, existentialism and a sort of more pessimistic view of life and the world. And there is a strange connection here that you draw out in the book, how your worldview started to change after your UFO experience. And this, at some point, this led you to Colin Wilson, the well-known uh, author and thinker, uh, who himself wrote a lot about uh, the UFO phenomenon. So if you could perhaps just sort of join all of that together, you know, to tell us a little bit about that UFO experience how, how it led to Wilson and about how your view of the world began to change. Well, it really began in around 2008, and that's when I saw the UFO in February. But before that, I was really reading pessimistic philosophers like Emil Schuan, Schopenhauer, and sort of the existentialist works like Jean-Paul Sartre, Eugene Ionescu, and, and, and so on. And it, it was really because it felt culturally sanctioned, almost, to read these books. I mean, as, as well, I enjoyed the work of Michel Welbeck as well, and atomized. And although, as a kid, I'd, I'd always been interested in paranormal phenomena, because I collected a magazine called the X-Factor magazine, which is one of those sort of spin-offs of the X-Files at the time when people were interested in paranormal psychology because it was on TV. And... I always used to read it with a sort of degree of detachment and, and sort of enjoyed it. But no one really told me that it was a load of rubbish or anything like that. And as I grew older into my teenage years, um, I started to grow away from paranormal and, and Fortean phenomena because it seemed sort of suspect, like you weren't meant to associate it, yourself with it. And, and certainly the people I was sort of hanging around with and so on, um, although a lot of my friends are into the paranormal, in it, when you're sort of getting into literature, it's sort of shoved away and seen as kitsch. And, and then you see all the, the sort of UFO books, and you sort of, you, you're not. It's not any snobbery as such. It's more of you, you feel like you ought to be spending your time reading the classics and so on. And then, as I was, as 2008 kind of came on, um, I was continuously sort of getting trapped in this kind of gloomy worldview. And we used to go to these uh, these little woodlands in Kings Linford, which is a little village outside of Wolverhampton. It's about nine miles outside of Wolverhampton. And uh, there were three, four of us. There were three of my friends, including myself, obviously. And then we used to go up for these little fires in the woods and we would take a few beers up there. And I was about 23 at the time. This was uh, 2008. 
we went up there and it was literally you know you, it was a matter of like setting up a fire and sitting under these trees and we did it quite a few times because there wasn't that much to do in this little village and then um i remember sitting on a, on a, on a sort of fallen tree and i looked out at, at the horizon which was facing towards kimba and there was this white bright white light on the horizon and i looked at it and i thought well it might be just a low plane and the a low plane, but you know when the the lights of a plane are sort of turning in your direction, so it looks like a car headlight coming over a hill from the far distance, sort of thing like that. It's sort of it's directly at you, and you're just kind of waiting for it to turn away, so then you can see the flashing lights. And so the perspective was a bit difficult at the time, and then so I sat there watching it and realised that the white light wasn't actually that far away at all, which was a bit sort of odd, and it wasn't making any sound whatsoever. And then it sort of gently sort of floated towards us with no sound in it hovering above this field. And as we were in a sort of enclave in the forest with an open sky above it, it sort of glided in absolute silence. It was quite a large object. And, and then it sort of floated over over us, and it was completely still and silent, and the luminosity of it was not, not really quite mechanical, like an, an ordinary sort of plane or a, me- a mechanism, a sort of machine didn't really have a machine-like quality to it. And the, and the lights were quite vivid as well. And um, we had all saw it, and I, I was panicking. I was sort of in a state of fear, because you, you're, so, you're sort of out there in the middle of nowhere, and there's nowhere to turn at all. And so I sort of went into flight, you know, sort of flight mode. As my friends stood directly underneath it, and it, it went sort of bright red, and then sort of carried on, and we ran to the edge of the... the woodland and then that that time i think that side of the woods sort of looks over dudley area and then we saw it sort of pass backwards and forwards sort of left to right almost scanning the horizon and one of my friends there he went into an elated state but i'm not sure if this was due to sort of the adrenaline of the experience and and we sort of felt a sort of sense of aliveness of the environment and then from there, we sort of returned home, although we kept seeing this object on the way back, and we got back home, and it was quite late. And I think I went to bed really late at night, about 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning, something like this. And the next day, I wrote an email to a UFO group sort of reporting the experience, and they came to to um, study it and interview me and so on. And then after that, I, I became more interested in, in the UFO because obviously this had completely mystified me. And I thought at the time, who who would you turn to? Who's a valuable sort of writer that you could turn to? And I'd already read The Outsider, which was like the study by Colin Wilson of, of existentialists. So it was a sort of guidebook to existentialism for me. And I always remembered that he wrote a book on aliens. So I thought, how strange is that? Because in my mind, he was associated with The Outsider. And then I didn't really know there was any other books written by him that were really kind of outside of the 1950s. I always sort of assumed his his career was sort of concentrated around the outsider, and I, I couldn't imagine a Colin Wilson writing an alien, a book on extraterrestrials, so I picked one up, and I was quite surprised by it, um, because I was expecting it to be sort of covering covering familiar ground in, in ufology, but it still retained the spirit of the outsider, in my opinion. It, it sort of approached it from this existentialist point of view, and... What it looked at really fascinated me because he, he looked at it with a, a sense of the mystery of it. 
and also what can you do with the experiences, which is the most frustrating thing about anomalous experience in general. And I think a lot of people suffer from this this problem of um, if they have an anomalous experience, how then do they express it to people in a manner that is believable? But then you have to tell people, really, if you want to communicate about the anomalous experience, what its value is, because a lot of people can see it as a sort of a trivial event in a way, and this is one of the things that that, you, that scares you away from ufology when, when you're sort of inculcated in mainstream ideas, really, I mean, sort of mainstream materialist ideas, is that it doesn't seem to have an existential value to it. But when you start to investigate the subject, it sort of opens so many doors and, and completely acts as a transition from one worldview or one paradigm to another. So... And this is what kind of uh, Colin Wilson's work seemed to do. It, it seemed to take the existentialist point of view and extend it into the new existentialism, which is a sort of philosophical extension of existentialism, which accepts wider realities, higher experiences, rather than accepting sort of a meaningless cosmos. And obviously, if, if there is an anomalous event that happens in your life, that that's just not applicable. You can't you can't really continue with the existentialists if there's a, a sense of something more. And I think this is why like an anomalous experience, especially seeing a UFO, acts as a sort of catalyst. Because as as soon as you start reading UFO literature, so many new ideas come come with it. Things just aren't taken for granted anymore. And suddenly you, you're facing a lot of people, um, testimony and I mean, from the work of John Mack to Jacques Vallée, that just it completely rewrites and, and, and makes you completely reconsider reality and what that what that is, what reality is, and what the experience of reality is. Okay, well, what you just said is so interesting. How those various factors came together, and that element from earlier in your life, Wilson, sort of came to the fore again and was part of this transformation. In dealing with uh, these sort of phenomena, I always find, I mean, I came to Wilson, I've, I've spoken about it many times here. It was through finding his book, The Occult, which is a book from the 1970s. I found that in the 1980s, read it then, and changed all sorts of paradigms for me, not just that book, but his approach in general. Mm. And I then brought that to bear on any time I was dealing with anything paranormal or supernatural after that, uh, which I'd always been very interested in since as a, I was a child. I mean, I got into UFOs via, I guess, a combination of science fiction and astronomy, both of which I was very interested in. And where those two things overlap, you know, you've got, you know, the UFO uh, phenomenon. But when I was dealing with any paranormal or supernatural phenomenon or issue, I, what Wilson lent me, I guess, his psychic reality, as he would have called it, was that mm. uh, we need to break down these dualistic borders that quite often steer our thinking, those borders being those between mind and matter, real and unreal. And yes. when you take on board that the nature of time, space and matter are not what you thought, that there's actually a wider set of rules and parameters at play here, then ghosts and all sorts of incursions from the beyond and UFOs, etc. start to make more sense. It doesn't mean you then understand them per se, but suddenly it's like, okay, we've got, we're on a much better footing here to start considering this. Yeah, that's really true. And I think one of the most important factors is about anomalous phenomena or Fortean phenomena is really what they mean. Uh, what, what do they infer 
Um, the, the reason why I called the book Evolutionary Metaphors is because the title came to me first, really, because when I started to think of Fortean phenomena or UFOs or abduction phenomena or fairy folklore even, there always seemed to be a sense that it, it was a play or, uh, or even a synchronicity as a sort of tr a trickster-like thing. When it happens, it, it's so unusual, it's, it's juxtaposed against your normal experience of time and meaning. It's sort of like meaning invades time and suddenly time itself becomes a sort of playful, sort of playful dough, you know, which, which thought can influence. I mean, for an example of my synchronicity on my own life, which is, it's fairly a mundane one in some ways, but I, I was walking up a street once and I was talking to someone about Rudolf Steiner. I didn't know much about anthroposophy, and I, I always wondered what the what anthroposophy had to give to the world. So I asked my friend at the time, I said, I wonder what the fruits are of anthroposophy. And I walked into a charity shop, and there was a book right in front of me called The Fruits of Anthroposophy. Right, it was the same title that I, within about 10 seconds of saying it, around the corner, I hadn't even arrived at the shop. And then suddenly, it sort of leaps out of you, it's sort of, well, how could that be there? That's ahead of me in time. When those kinds of things happen, you start to get very odd. You have to start, then start to accept that reality doesn't seem to conform to ordinary, sort of the divided sense of mind and matter that, that seems to be split, that thought or meaning cannot exist outside of time, so to speak, that can influence your life. So, and with anomalous phenomena too, it, it, it it's very similarly related to synchronicity because if an anomalous event happens to you, for example, that's quite profound, such as the, you can see in the work of Willy Schreiber, for example, it completely rewrites his approach to existence. That say, if he read nausea, for example, he would he would see it for for really what it is. It, it's a limited perspective, and it accepts the limited expect, uh, perspective and calls it nausea. That's sort of the acceptance of contingency of existence whereas an anomalous experience and to accept meaning in this regard then opens existentialism up and if, you, if that's if you talk about existentialism as a, a, f a form of phenomenology which assesses uh, human consciousness and what it can experience and wilson's work of course accepts the higher tiers of consciousness the higher levels of consciousness and includes them in, in a worldview, in the, the outsider cycle. And that's why it was so easy for Wilson to then go on to write books like The Occult and Alien Dawn. There's a spectrum of Wil through Wilson's work, and there, there's some people that, that regard his existentialist work as the canonical li li Wilson, and then he's branching off into the, to the occult as a sort of betrayal of existentialism. But the, the curious thing is about that is the bridge between Wilson's existentialism and his work on the occult came around about 1967 and 1969, let's say, where he started to write science fiction. And then, of course, in science fiction, what you can accept and what you can use and utilize as a, a tool to explore other realities opens up considerably. So the occult really kind of seeped into Wilson's work through the works of science fiction like Mind Parasites and The Philosopher's Stone, where time vision and psychokinesis and psychometry was taken for granted. Suddenly time, meaning, they sort of all blend together and, and especially consciousness becomes a fundamental part in, in battling what, what he calls the mind parasites, which is the sort of archonic 
force which keeps man trapped in a in a sort of limited vision of himself and these are these are the things that existentialism tends to accept whereas uh, writers on ufology especially it's sort of the more psychological writers on ufology accept and they they accept it as a a limited perspective and the intrusions of paranormal psychology paranormal experience and transpersonal experience becomes a, a, a door basically a doorway into a far richer um, question which is one of the chapters in evolutionary metaphors is called the power of the question which is what Whitley Strieber sort of celebrates of the anomalous and the absurd in his experiences in, in communion and he always, I always think he's a, a model ufologist in some ways it, because he went through an experience and he never really definitively states what it is he doesn't he calls it the visitors and kind of keeps it open and I think increasingly with Strieber his work expands outwards and it, it never really settles on any sort of dogmatic interpretation and I think in in some ways Strieber is a sort of a new existentialist in his own right and I remember when when I was writing for the Colin Wilson conference uh, there were many quotes that Schreiber used, which have, have a lot in common with the new existentialism. And it seemed natural to me that we could use Wilson's uh, philosophical system. Oh, it's not really a system as such, but it's his philosophical works in The Outsider and, and, and extended to the occult as a sort of framework to interpret other realities and incorporate, incorporate them into a, an existential philosophy, really. Today we're predominantly going to be talking about the UFO phenomenon, what that might mean, lots of different aspects of it, and what influence there might be there for, for our own collective future. We've talked quite a bit about Colin Wilson up to this point. If listeners want to find out a little bit more about Wilson, they could do a lot worse than listen to the three-part show I did with Gary Lockman on Colin Wilson's work. You can find that at legalizefreedom.com. A couple of housekeeping points. You mentioned the book Nausea. Uh, that's by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher as an existentialist work which takes a very pessimistic view of reality so just if people want to get that reference and you've more or less qualified your mention of Whitley Strieber, Strieber however you pronounce it author of Communion the book which came out in the late 80s was made into a popular film starring Christopher Walken later so a lot of people will have picked up on that because it was a really big phenomenon at the time and I remember reading Communion uh, when it came out and it was a shattering experience Nothing like, obviously, what he went through, but it was it was quite the paradigm changer. But um, what I want to do now is to almost rewind a little bit and consider the nature of the UFO phenomenon, because there's been lots of different takes on this. That They started out, if we go back to Roswell, for example, not where the whole <laughs> thing started, of course, because there's been records of strange lights and fires and objects in the sky for as long as there's been human beings, as far as we can see. But we go back to Roswell, the sort of modern UFO era, if we can call it that. It was all very much about 3D solid objects yes. and, and creatures and what have you. And then that overlaps with lights. And then it became more about slightly more indeterminate things like that. And then people, mm. people start to talk about them being interdimensional, which might go some way to explaining how they manifest and, and how they you know appear and disappear and various different aspects of their physicality or non-physicality and then there's the notion of them being psychic phenomena projections and the thing is that even today they seem to come from everywhere so yeah, this is yeah. this is like an emergent developing phenomenon it doesn't seem to be it does, we don't have to pick one of these categories and put them in that and um 
go back to, I mean, my early days with UFOs, I was always interested, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, because you're watching The Sky at Night with Patrick Moore and then reading sci-fi, and there's quite a heady brew that got Mm. you thinking about what might be out there, you know. I've done shows with uh, Courtney Brown on remote viewing, where he and his remote viewing team have reported, claimed very, very much a physical reality for for alien life and UFO phenomenon in various parts of the solar system and the wider galaxy. Um, I did a show very recently with Frank Joseph, and he's talking, uh, recounting people's experience with light, sometimes with, with lights and objects and manifestations are a little difficult to pin down, but very yep. much coming from the 3D reality perspective on UFOs. I personally was never really convinced by the purely physical explanation. Uh, I always felt there was a lack of evidence. People talked about, oh, evidence is everywhere, you know, but disclosure always just seemed to be just around the corner. And that's what led me via Wilson to look at other avenues. I just didn't think we were looking at metal craft you know mm. with some kind of propulsion crossing vast you know light years of space with little green men in there that just wasn't satisfying to me at all i think that's one of the things with ufology is when i when i start writing this book i was quite hesitant because it's it's very fractured there's a lot of uh, fractions in the ufo community so you know and um then there's the physicalists who want to, it's sort of the nuts and bolts explanation. And then it sort of extends into, into more sort of a, a, ethereal realms, almost bordering on spiritualism. And then it goes into channeling. And then, uh, and then you have a quite convincing books on channeling as well. Uh, that it doesn't actually make you convinced of the entities being truthful, but um, there's a number of people that get involved with it, which makes you think that there's an element of reality to the channeling aspect, but not not necessarily to the contents of what are being channeled. And I don't think there's really any problem with any one particular view. It's just um, what the UFO seems to be. It seems to be um, a backdrop which you can you can project your own paradigm onto. So if you know so someone with a scientific background or a sort of hands-on mechanical background, they, they would want to see evidence. It's, and they'll become sort of crash scene investigators with Roswell and so on, and, and then they're looking for exposure or disclosure. They're trying to find something real, and they're, they're treating it like mis- vehicles from outer space. It's an important area of inqu- inquiry because, I mean, it's uh, we have to then accept that there are other possibilities of visitors from outer space but then then when you start to look f- further into it it starts to become a far deeper cultural phenomenon it, it weaves in and out of our cultural interpretations and it and it frustrates them on purpose almost it becomes a trickster uh, the people that get interested in it are the way they're depicted in, in movies and 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 the way people talk about ufologists is always the, the, the sort of the liminal part of society, which is one of the interesting things Jason Reza Georgiani points out in his book Prometheus and Atlas is that um, these sort of trickster or UFO combinations of, of phenomena tend to massage themselves into the cultural dreams of, of a very select corner of society to, to then generate a, a mythology or a storytelling that's then then repeated and, and absorbed into cultural artifacts such as science fiction and, and films, and even, even to a degree now philosophy, as it's sort of coming out more and more with uh, the work of Jeffrey Kripal and with working with Schreiber. And it's, it's a strange phenomenon because it's, it exists, it's existed for a long time, thousands of years, according to people like Jack Vallée, weaving itself through 
fairy folklore, abductions sort of being an adaption of those in, and, and being garbed in modern, a modern garb, which is mechanical, procedural, and with sort of scalpels and genetic manipulation. It becomes very sort of clinical in that regard. And then eventually, eventually it leads to sort of a trauma to transformation as well. This is a sort of new development in ufology, which is, is bordering on the shamanic element of the UFO phenomena, which I think Jason Horsley points out, which is called trauma genesis, which is uh, it's basically transformation through trauma, which is one of the main things that Strieber sort of points out as a horror writer. There's this constant tension in his work, which develops this vision of, of man that's sort of frustrated by by these experiences, but from from these sort of fractures in his reality, and these often through traumatic experiences, uh, blossom out psychic capacities or transpersonal rebirthing with Groff's sort of work. And these kind of fractures in the paradigm um, in people on an individual level and on a cultural level seem to come out of a deliberate frustration of our interpretive grids that we put over anomalous phenomena in general. It seems obsessed with churning up the interpretations that, that we have or any, any solid, if we say, interpretation that's too, too firmly attached to it starts to fall away. Uh, it's, it's very interesting reading from books from the, the 90s, say, with, with the crop circle phenomena. And then you start to look at um, other books as well, and um, say Alien Energy by Andrew Collins that looks at the Wilhelm Reichian elements of ufology and in Reich called them EMs, I think. I can't remember what it means from the top of my head. Something like um, EAs, I think. Something like electrical anomalies or energy anomalies or something like that. And he, he used cloudbusters to diminish them. I mean, I mean, there's so many interpretations of the ph- phenomena. And yeah, I think there is a way of sort of panning out and then getting a whole sense of it. And the, the only way you can sort of get to the bottom or get get around it, so to, so to speak, is to, to come up with a large enough framework which can absorb all of its complexity somehow. And I think the only way I could think of anything was to call it a, a sort of metaphoric phenomena uh, uh, with a tendency towards evolution. And that evolution is the process of its development, really. It's a process of towards evolution through symbol. So... I always thought the most obvious and the most flexible model for its interpretation would be esotericism of the occult because it has that science fictional flexibility about it, but it has a robust psychology to it as well, and it has a, pr- a practical dimension as well as a imaginative exercise. And, it, and, and generally, the occult is evolutionary because it accepts higher faculties which seems to be another part of the UFO phenomena too. So if, if, if there is these intrusions that are coming out or within, within the mind or in the imagination, then you, then you would have to accept that the imagination and the mind itself can be influenced on a very deep level. And it isn't uniquely to the individual that it's a collective, a sort of collective unconscious. So it seems to be a, a life force that bubbles up like a dream and sort of uh, bubbles into ordinary consensual reality and then b- drops back into the into the the world of potential really 
And it keeps coming back in different guises and it keeps reabsorbing itself into the cultural, the, the myth, the cultural myth of the cultural story. Yes, it's what I was saying earlier. Yeah. You know, there really is a, a, an, it's an emergent and evolutionary thing in itself. Yeah. Um, with my experience of the UFO community, shall I say, or the ET community over the years, especially at the more fanatical end, you know, having attended conferences and what have you. And when I say fanatical, I don't mean that as a, a derogatory term, but just literally fanatical. Yeah. I think that like a lot of us, many of these people do sense that there is more to reality than our five sense reality, which is interesting because they're sensing it with something other than their fifth, you know, their five senses, which kind of in itself indicates mm. there is something else going on. But their interpretation of the UFO phenomenon as physical, you know, as actual craft and actual creatures is tied in with, and this is my take based on the th- things that I've experienced, things people have said and done and watching presentations and listening to people speak, is that there's an underlying desperation for change in the world that many mm. of these people feel. So this is, and it's at this point in the light of Roswell where the UFO things, be- UFO thing becomes tied up with conspiracy theories and that uh, things are being withheld from us, you know. Nothing short of a Independence Day style landing on the White House lawn will do. You know, that that is where it's going and that will happen. It's just a matter of time. It's what I said earlier about disclosure always being just around the corner. So I think that that over-reliance, that clinging to that, you know, the UFO thing must be physical, must be real. There must be graves inside actual flying saucers is tied in with that that need for change because only these things manifesting in front of us, uh, all of us in a concrete way, you know, not open to interpretation anymore, not open to any differences in our psychology or emotions or anything like that, but only something that's 3D made of whatever substance sitting right there that we can all go up and tap it with a hammer and everyone can agree that they've seen it and it's on the six o'clock news. Nothing less will do. That's, that's very interesting. And, and, and I think Jung picked up on that when he wrote Flying Saucers. He saw, um, the UFO as a sort of, uh, manifestation of tensions a sort of a collective unconscious so that, it, that there was a frustration going on i mean this was written in the cold around about the cold war time i can't remember the the date of the actual book it was 1950 so around about 1956 or something and um well he he saw it as a manifestation of of the period really that it was a, a symbol of 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 the turn of the astrological age into the age of aquarius and that that it was a, a a deliberately mercurial or liquid sort of like phenomena, and he talks at the beginning of the book about this coming new age. I think in some ways Jung went as about as far as you can go with the UFO phenomena with that book. I mean, if you if you revisit it, and I think the Jungian approach to the ufology is probably the most complex one, which can absorb absorb some of the difficulties because Jung never really said that it's uniquely a psychological phenomena and it doesn't have any physical existence because he acknowledges that it can be picked up on radar and it can have some kind of objective existence as well. So then you have to accept that the the kind of mind that dreams up these UFOs, if it's man's collective unconscious, mankind's collective unconscious, then it can affect reality. And of course, that wasn't very far from his idea of synchronicity again. So um, the UFO really does tie very closely to the 
the Jungian framework because the way the, the UFO is played out in experiences as well. But a lot of the books sort of play out a sort of dramatic, uh, very dra- a dramatic experience, which can be interpreted metaphorically, symbolically, like a dream again. And even the way it's sort of absorbed by mass media can can also be interpreted as an, a sort of form of dream interpretation, which is is a product of the times as well. And, and you can see how how the idea is absorbed. And how the idea is redistributed, really, into into the world. And then what you can do is, with a lot of the, the good books on UFOs, we go into the sociological aspect of it, start to see how the phenomena mirrors the time, really, the, the way it was perceived. So you look at medieval times or even ancient Japan, which is the uh, one of the old UFO, UFO sightings that Valais points out in Passport to Magonia, it's sort of in, it's inter- interpreted as a sign of, 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 of the death of, of, of a king or, or it might be interpreted as an omen of some sort. And then, of course, then it starts to change to modern times as a, an invasion from outer space to a symbol of wholeness, which Jung saw it as. And then eventually it takes a sort of psychological dimension with books like Daemonic Universe by Pat- Patrick Harper, which sees it it's sort of a, a bridgeway between fairy folklore, Jungian psychology, and a symbol, this sort of esoteric symbol that can be interpreted. And then, and then, of course, you've got the physicalists, which which are, they have a sort of millennial millennialism about them, that they they're looking for government disclosure, and they they start to project um, flaws in the government, which obviously they certainly exist. But if people are seeking out that there's a secret hidden agenda and, and things like this. It, it, it falls into a very similar framework to um, conspiracy theory, where conspiracy theory sort of acts as a... It, it's got a very similar template as a religion in some ways, because you, you accept that there is a truth, that this truth is out there, and there's people hiding it. And it has a basically Gnostic vision that we're in a fallen state, and then there's these uh, higher entities or, or, or people in power hiding this truth and of course with that truth comes power and obviously you start to see how 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 this thing at the center of it or the ufo or the or the alien or things outside of of our world outside of our reality becomes a sort of um central of the center of the cyclone where every projection that you want to add to add to the mix starts to spin around it but in in its process it sort of pulls in interpretations and it and it it weaves out stories and it, it can be transformational or it can be uh, damaging. It can be an obsession or it can be, it can be symbolic of a new change or, a, but it's, 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 it's a very sort of fresh and creative idea that sort of haunts us all the time. And I think anytime that, um, people get interested in, in ufology, it presents a sort of, um, phenomenological mirror, which we, we project into the UFO as a, as a as a future folklore in a way and we we kind of mold it as we go along it's, it's sort of constantly developing just ahead of us and outside of our grasp and it becomes that ultimate science fictional folklore that works forwards rather than backwards it's not something you look backwards at it's a mythology in action a mythology bursting out of of the creative matrix of of man really yes so, and i think i think we're being led somewhere really which yeah. is which is what we're going to come on to talk about 
uh, in a short while. But just a couple of more points when we're considering what the actual nature of uh, the UFO phenomenon is. And there's the idea, uh, I can't recall exactly where it crops up in your book, but there's the idea that the UFO phenomena are not the alien intelligence as such, but the way... The, the UFOs are the way that the alien intelligence is communicating with us. When I say alien, don't think little green men. I just mean other, either non-human or beyond human, whatever, sort of superhuman, whatever it happens to be, a form of intelligence mm, that is yeah. either higher than ours or just very different. It's just something that's out there. And that overlaps with what I was saying earlier about all these other paranormal and supernatural phenomena, that they can all be part of the same picture, that mm. wh- whether it's a UFO or an alien abduction scenario, or whether it's a haunting, or whatever it happens to be, all these different paranormal happenings are the various ways that this alien intelligence is saying, hey, isn't what you think it is. And the fact that it's developing, as I just mentioned, seems to be leading us somewhere. It's like a breadcrumb Mm. trail. I've I've been thinking a lot about this, this idea that there is another reality, basically, that runs very parallel to our own. Say we live on a day-to-day basis, and we accept the sort of daily events of our lives. And we, we usually kind of exist in a, a state of accepting that time and space and meaning and life is sort of short and short and uh, it, it's difficult at some times. And then, but uh, at other times, there's, um, say, a new mode enters, such as like people like Abraham Maslow talk about the peak experience or, or altered states of consciousness. It, not necessarily a drug induced or anything like that the mystical experiences or chemically induced mystical experiences but ordinary experiences where a sort of synchronicity that seems to occur in life and these kind of bubble up from a parallel sort of daemonic track of time and a track of evolution which seems to follow us it sort of follows us about but we only sort of step into it um a few times in our lives where we might be having an a very profound experience or a sort of let's say when when you're in the moment or the flow say so to speak is and then you say listen to a piece of music and then suddenly that music seems to have so much depth to it that it doesn't normally have yeah and 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 as you listen to the lyrics you can kind of hear some parts of the force that sort of animated that creation in that song. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what the song is sometimes. It's like, if you are in a moment and sort of a synchronistic moment where the, a song comes on and the lyrics are precisely unique to that situation and they suddenly mean something, then you, you get a sense of like, what did they mean? Did they know what they meant in that, in that lyric? Or am I reading into the lyric? And what, what, what seems to be something quite interesting is, when we are partaking in life, we're only partaking in it with one level of our consciousness is like the waking consciousness. But if someone's creating something, they might be doing it with their waking consciousness, but with another consciousness simultaneous to that. And they can never, they they might not be able to grasp exactly what profundity actually went into the creation itself. And yet it's infused with with a deeper unconscious force. And in that, in that process of creation, they create something that can have huge impacts on thousands of people, such as if it's a simple pop song to a, a famous book uh, that becomes sort of archetypally classic. If someone's in an altered state of consciousness, if they're really excited and they read that book, suddenly every single 
sentence of that book seems to be infused with meaning far deeper perhaps than maybe even the author realized at the time or a piece of art or something like this and everyone sort of talks about these classic paintings or architecture that seems to be infused with a mind which is greater than the the, the artist himself as at least consciously himself so you wonder that on on the vast scale of things so cultures running along through time and human history sort of running uh, on a sort of on a track but parallel to it is another reality which sort of comes through the human spirit and it's all sort of hidden all the way through history and in the present and every time someone creates something that creation is then um infused with a deeper part of the collective spirit that comes through someone it's really difficult to explain actually i think because it's certainly if you open your eyes, if one person opens their eyes suddenly to a piece of art, for example, and they can see something in it, and then they might, ten minutes later, lose that state of mind, they would not then be able to sort of convey exactly what its meaning is. So over time is a good example of when you see a film when you're older or when you're a child, and it's it's got more meaning, but it's it's meaning content grows with your level of consciousness effectively but it's like where does that end i mean it, what kind of lens or perceptual lens can open until things you can't just see the evolutionary process part sort of part of existence part and parcel with everyday experience so you know of course if this happened if this lens opened further synchronicities would be a, a part of an everyday experience because that synchronistic dimension seems to be closely tied to another mode of consciousness where you then pay attention to reality on a more subtle level and then suddenly experience starts to bubble with more meaning. And obviously there's a danger to that because it can just be analogical or, or it can be seeing analogies where there aren't any and so on. And this is what really is sort of chaos magic looks into and so for occultism is, is constantly looking for analogy and symbols and metaphors and then trying to they're either trying to make them mean something for practical terms or creative terms or they're trying to find a deeper level reality where these symbols and realities sort of intertwine with each other and i think the ufo is a good example of this kind of process where a sort of demonic potential or reality that starts to seep into existence and the more you look at it the more mercurial and multi-dimensional multifaceted it becomes then you have to sort of go into an interpretive way that a type of consciousness to actually answer the question of its existence that concludes part one of our interview be sure to tune in next week for part two if you enjoyed the show check out the website which is legalizefreedom.com that's legalize-freedom.com where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics including politics and economics, energy and environment, culture, spirituality, history and the nature of reality. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. Legalize Freedom.